You know, it, it really is amazing. I, w- I was talking with Devin and then um, Tony after the first service, and both of those guys are in building and engineering where they're paid to see what's wrong in circumstances. And I do that really well, and that's, that's, just, that's just part of how I, I experience life. But one of the things that the Lord has helped me with as I've grown up and has really helped me see better is not to just see what's wrong. And as I was praying and thinking about what to talk about this week, was to really try to give us a vision for us to be able to see what's right about ourselves and what's right about the world. I mean, there is no shortage of places that you can turn to um, in the various media that are available to us to tell you what's wrong, especially with the people who don't see things the way that we do. And you could define we in however way that you want. But there's no limit of that. And because of that, I, I, I just get a sense along the way that we as people have gotten less good at seeing what's right, of seeing what's beautiful, of seeing what's good in one another. And that is absolutely essential. In fact, I, I, we're going to see from the scriptures later on that what God wants to accomplish in the world with each of us is absolutely dependent on somebody else being able to see what is good in us and to tell us that. That the whole way that God has worked this out is for is he counts on us to take this ability that we have to see what is distinctive. And usually we are use, we're using that ability to see what's distinctive, to see what's wrong most of the time, but to flip that around and be able to see what's right, to see what's beautiful, to see what's praiseworthy in people, and to be able to say that to one another. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, is about how God wants to use us and empower us and graciously enable us to be able to see that in one another's lives and to speak that into one another's lives. Now, why do we need to do this? Because we are just that amazing and awesome as human beings. If the idea people were awesome felt a little overclaiming to you or felt a little not keeping with your experience, let me show you again what we looked at last week in the Bible. Psalm 8 says this about humanity, about, about human beings. It says he's made us a little lower than the angels. Um, C.S. Lewis uses the phrase that we are possible gods and goddesses. Um, we are so amazing that we are almost divine. And that God has created us to be crowned with glory and honor. Not crowned with just the ability to just kind of muddle through and kind of be okay and be slightly less worse than yesterday. But that each of us was created in, as an astounding person. And it is our job collectively to help one another see that. To see the glory and the honor that we were built for. But here's the problem. That crown that we were created to wear, it doesn't feel right at first. It doesn't feel right. You know, there's the occasional person, if I say, you know, you were created for glory and honor, that you were created to wear this crown that God has made for you, maybe one in a hundred person says, yeah, that's right. But the rest of us are like, ah, no, well, yeah, theoretically, but in our experience, that's not the case. So this is why 
it is essential that we help each other in that process. Because this is how God arranged it. That he created us to know this. That we were created for glory and honor. But it is really hard to get there on our own. That our own abilities and our own sense of our own failures, which are real. It's not that the glory and honor that God wants to give us is not ignoring the fact that we failed. Not ignoring the fact that we can do really awful things. But it's the fact that we have the propensity to fail doesn't negate who we were made, made to be. So I've really been helped by what C.S. Lewis says on this in his, his essay that became a sermon, The Weight of Glory. And I'm pretty sure I've talked with this, I've, I've used this before, but there's also Bible passages that I've quoted before that I quote again in this role, because it doesn't stop being true just because I've said it once from the stage. So this is still true. So he says this, at the end, this is near the end of, of, this, of this sermon or essay. He says, you know, and he did this at a university in the 1940s, so you can kind of see the language. It's a little different. But he says, you know, it, it would be possible for each of us to think too much about our own potential glory from this point on or hereafter. He says, but it is impos- hardly possible for him or us to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor." We can get caught up, and, and you know, we've, we've probably all had narcissistic moments, and we see this very easily in others, so you can probably think of people who've got caught up, caught up in this. So maybe we can overemphasize our own, but we cannot possibly overemphasize the responsibility that we have to one another, that our neighbor's glory, our neighbor's honor, our neighbor's ability to wear that crown is one of the chief jobs that God gives us as his people to help people recognize that. The way Lewis puts it, he says, the weight or the load or the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load that's so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're talking about how we can learn to carry the load of our neighbor's glory on our back and to express that to him. You know, how do we get there? And as I've said before, we're going to talk about that we basically need to train ourselves to see it and then say it. Now, these are all skills we already have. You know, we know how to see things. Most of us, there's some place where we know how to see things that are wrong. And the ability to see things wrong is also the ability to see what's right. It's just looking in a different way, and it's looking with a different set of habits. And we all have figured out some way to speak to people along the way. So it's just learning to speak in the proper way and the, and the way that fits this. So the best way that I know to start this and where I think the Bible is really getting at this is this passage in Philippians 4 where it kind of lays out how do you do it? How do you learn to see what is right, to see the signs of glory and honor in our neighbor and to tell them about it? Um, this is what he says, this is, and I'll contextualize this in a minute, but this is Paul writing to his friends in Philippi, a major city in Greece, who've been having some difficulties, and he tells them, these are kind of his final words of, of encouragement to them. He says, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. That is the primary path. That's the primary way 
that we can learn to see what is excellent, what is honorable, and what is glorious in our neighbors, is to look at that. Now, when we see something like that, especially if you have a critical mind, you start to think, well, yeah, but what about this, and what about this, and what about this? So for a long time, I resisted this. People would quote this, and they just... The people that would quote this at me when I was young, I know they didn't mean this, but I didn't have enough capacity to understand what they were really saying yet. And so I remember this being quoted at me in my 20s when I was really impressed with myself. And I would, I would hear this, and I would just say, oh, they just think being nice is enough. You know, and, and it's like some Victorian lady that says, oh, I hope there's no unpleasantness anywhere, and they get the vapors. And, and, and that's how I, how I understood this. But if you read this passage in, con- in context, this is actually coming not in a world where people are trying to, if we can just be nice and have ponies and unicorns and soft things all the time, everything will be okay. This passage is rooted in a place of si- sine- serious. Sorry? This passage is rooted in a place of significant conflict. This whole latter part, I mean, Paul is writing to people who hate his guts and who not only have been fighting with him and rejecting his authority and running him down, but he's talking to people who are now at each other's throats too. Have you ever noticed that conflict tends to multiply? You know, people get unhappy here, and have you noticed how once you're unhappy here, it's really easy to see what's wrong over here and then what's wrong over here. So you start out the morning bad, your dog looks at you funny or or something like that, and then you, you leave and you go to work and you're just looking for that from everybody else. Or you've had a bad day at work and your, your, your wife greets you and, and you're, you're growling at her for no reason at all. There's just something about the way that we're wired that once we go down a path of conflict and unhappiness, we tend to stay there. And those switches that help us see what's wrong stay all the way on and turn all, all the way up. So Paul is writing to people who are doing this, and they have been stuck in conflict. And so in the earlier part of chapter 4, he's trying to give them some ways out of it. You know, he's saying, you know, you just need to continue to honor God. You need to pray and, and, and continue to offer yourselves to God. He says, you need to let your gentleness be um, noticeable to all people. Normally when you're in a conflict, you don't want your gentleness noticeable, right? You want to know... I'm right and they're wrong. But he he does that. But then finally, he's trying to give them a trajectory out of this. He's trying to give them a trajectory out of their conflict and how they could go back to being people who are on the same team. And ultimately, what he wants them to do is what we're talking about today, to be people who aren't in conflict with each other, but to be people who can be neighbors, who can help one another see God's glory and God's honor in their lives. And so... He gives them this. But there is something about conflict that makes it difficult to let it go. And one of the reasons is, is that conflict actually gives us, or not just conflict, but the being outraged, being unhappy, the power to talk about what's wrong, actually creates a, a sense of fellowship. And most of you guys have probably experienced this, right? What's one of the quickest ways to bring a group of people together? You start complaining about the same thing, right? Have you guys seen that happen in your lives? You start complaining about something, and suddenly it's like, yeah, that guy's really smart, you know? 
And, and you, you start to really appreciate the, the depth of insight that the person has who is outraged at the same thing that you're outraged at. And it really brings you together. But what, what's fascinating about this is it, is it has a way of pushing out everything else. Um, I had a, a, a really fascinating conversation with a friend of mine recently about uh, kind of about this topic. And she had the misfortune of working in a, in a workplace that for about five years had a really difficult, malignant person leading their, their, their group. It was a, and, and to make it worse, it was a Christian nonprofit that she was working at. And so, you know, it's difficult when people are controlling and shaming and manipulative. And then if you add a Christian element on top of that, where people are shaming you and manipulating you and controlling you in Jesus' name, it's, it's, especially, it's especially difficult. Then finally, um, that person transitioned out. The, the larger organization saw what the people inside finally saw, and that person transitioned out. But what was fascinating is, you know, once that difficult supervisor was gone, my friend said this. She said that once we didn't have so-and-so to talk about and complain about anymore, we didn't have anything to talk about. We were stuck. So what I want to suggest is that we are in a time and a place where outrage is the latest thing. And and if you notice now that it's not just that you're outraged, but you have to be outraged at the particular thing. So this week, if you're outraged by the lion, but the lion killing Dennis, but you're not outraged by some other thing, you're a bad person. Or, you know, there's like this competitive outrage that we kind of measure each other by what we're outraged by. And, 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 oh, if you're not outraged by what I'm outraged by, I'm outraged at you. And now, I I don't know. There's, There's just something about this that... Our culture right now encourages us to be unhappy. And if you look at what a lot of social connections are in our culture right now, they're people who are not bound by what they believe, but they're bound by what they, they're unhappy about collectively. And what I want to suggest is, is, is that that outrage habit takes away from our ability to see what is good in one another, to see, to do the job that God has for us as God's people, to be able to help one another, our neighbors see how they're honorable, how they're glorious in God's sight. And so before we can begin to do that, I think that for most of us, some people, you don't even know what I'm talking about, about internet outrage and the lion killing dentist and all of that, so good, good for you. But for the rest of us who, and if it's not that, it's something else, The first step that I think God wants us to do is to begin to switch off the outrage stuff. And to begin to do that, we need to identify what the sources of our outrage are. So for a lot of us, it is social media or or the news media that we, we tend to listen to things at a particular pipe and that pipe is usually, we're good guys because those people who believe in that stuff are outrageous and terrible. And it does a really good job of keeping us wound up. Um, and I'm not being specific about this because you can find examples of this across the whole spectrum. But what I want to encourage you to do is whatever it is that winds you up, 
It may be something political. It may be something to do with culture. It may be something to do with how your neighbor has his band practicing in the yard on Saturday afternoons, like happened at my house yesterday, or the small yippy dogs that live within earshot of my house. Um, (laughs) Whatever it is that winds you up, trace it back. Because what we do is we get stuck with this idea that I'm I'm just kind of, and the effect that it has is that we're just sort of globally unhappy that we have this kind of general sense of things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And when that happens, it actually multiplies. You know, it, the, the outrage over the dog and the band and the guy who doesn't know what he wants to order when he gets to the front of the front fast food line and that guy who cuts in at the very last minute when the 57 and the 60 split apart, you know, that guy. Um, all of that stuff just kind of adds up. And it doesn't... But it actually doesn't add up. It multiplies. And this multiplies to that, and this multiplies to that. And the reason this is so essential is it blunts your ability to do the job that God has given you, to recognize and to tell people just how awesome that they are. I suspect that if everyone in this room disengaged on the lion-killing dentist issue, there'd still be plenty of outrage left for him in the world. But if everyone in this room can commit to finding what is beautiful and excellence in somebody in the next week and telling them, the world will be noticeably better off than it is right now. So identify the sources and then begin to switch on that what we actually need to do is we can't just tell each other, okay, stop being focused on what's negative. Stop being outraged. That's not enough. I mean, I used to see this try to happen when I was around Little League Baseball. You know, I, I don't know. I think it's better now that soccer is often the first sports experience that kids have because beginning with baseball, at least back when I was a kid, was terrifying. You know, your first real sports event is having somebody throw a projectile at you that can hurt you if it hits you. And that was my experience. The second baseball practice I was at, I got hit in the head with the ball. And so for the first half of my first year of Little League, when the pitcher got to here, I was out of the box. And my poor dad, who just absolutely loved baseball, I mean, he, he played baseball. He played in college. He turned down a chance to play professionally to marry this woman who was my mom. Um, and he just absolutely loved baseball. So his eldest son finally plays baseball, and he can't stand in the box for the first half of the season. I knew he was having a hard time. And, and, and I know he handled it well because later on when I was coaching my own kids through this, it was a similar thing. My son was maybe 9 or 10, and there was a boy that was obviously nervous in the box, and you could just see his dad struggling and struggling and struggling. The, the kid was just so nervous. And then finally the dad couldn't help himself anymore, and he just started shouting at him, relax, relax, relax. I don't think that helped. 
And so, and so my, my point being here is I could tell you disengage from negative stuff, disengage from criticism, disengage from outrage, but that's not going to be enough. We need a technique. We need, to be, we need another effort. So when you're teaching nervous boys or girls how to stand in the box, you don't tell them to relax. You tell them to focus on certain things. Make sure your stance is in the right place. Make sure your back leg, your weight is down and your weight is on the inside of your back foot. Make sure your grip is good. Make sure your bat is back. You know, there's things that you do rather than things that you don't do. It's really hard not to do something. But, and that, and that's, what, that's what Paul says in the passage, too. He doesn't say, stop being jerky people who are fighting with each other all the time. He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And so that's that's. that's that's what God wants us to do to things, is to think about these things. The word that's translated think here is interesting. It's, a, it, it's not just, hey, give this some thought once in a while, but it has with it the idea of begin a process of careful attention to this. Um, there's an American regionalism that, that people sometimes use. You need to go study on that. It's that kind of phrase that you need to really reflect on this and think on this. Make it your job to focus on this. Now, if you've ever been caught up in a cycle of criticism where you just kind of know you can't help but see what's wrong, you know what it feels like. But what he's asking you to do is to take what that feels like and flip it around. To not see what's wrong, but to see what's right. To focus not on what's blamable, not on what's false, not on what's ignoble, not what's adulterated or wrong, whatever's ugly or hateful, but to flip it around and to focus on what's actually there and what God really wants us to be able to see. There's something else that's fascinating about these words. Each one of these words, um, if you were to do a Bible study on this and a serious Bible study, one of the things that, that really pays off is if you can begin to see where similar words are used by the same author in other places. Because you, get to get, you get, begin to get a sense sense of that author's mind of how he's thinking and also you get a sense of who he's quoting so like the way these words appear like the word that's um, translated right there is a word that has rich meaning throughout the hebrew bible and into the new testament it mean, doesn't just mean what's right as opposed to what's wrong you know like there's a right way to cook pasta and a wrong way to cook pasta it's not that kind of thing it has to do with justice it has to do with everything fitting together really well. And that, that's, that's a word that is richly developed throughout the Bible, the idea of how righteousness and justice and peace, shalom, all fit together. And so there he's saying, look for signs of that, where you could just see everything is working exactly right in the way that God intended it to be. You want to be able to celebrate that. But what's really fascinating is that several of these words, you don't find them anywhere else in the Bible, but you do find them in Hellenistic literature. In, in the Greek secular literature of Paul's time. And so what he's actually doing is, is encouraging people to look beyond, and, and he's using phrases that aren't just Bible phrases and not just Christian phrases. That he, what he's encouraging them to do is to get out of your own silo. There's something, I think, about when you're in a conflict, your sense of me and not me, us and them, gets really exaggerated. 
And so remember, he's talking to people who are coming just out of a conflicted situation. And so he's actually encouraging them to see what's beautiful and good using words and ideas that aren't from their in-group, that aren't just exclusively Christian words. I mean, they are now because he said them. But, but the idea here is that even good Christian stuff, there's something about how we're wired as human beings, especially when that negative thing switches on, that the very best thing that God wants to teach us just becomes another set of prejudices if we're not careful. And so what he's trying to do is to get people out of that locked-in, conflicted thing and to be able to see or recognize how these things are. So what he encourages them to do, whatever is true, you want to celebrate that. So true in the sense of not false, not propagandistic. And you know what? A lot of times we get caught up into this because we only listen to people that tend to agree with us already. And so true is not something that stands out over there against us, but it's something that just belongs to our team. And he's saying, look for it, look beyond just your team to do this. Whatever is noble, this is one of those Greek words. And this is somebody who rises above their circumstances that does more than you would expect in a particular situation. And if you have the eyes to see it, you'll see that and be able to see that in the people around you. That whatever is right or just, and again, this is that idea of not just the right way and the wrong way, but the idea of everything working together. That you can see where somebody is really contributing to the harmony of the group, to the the vibe of the group. That's what's right. That's what's just. Whatever is pure. So this is one of the Bible words, and this is the idea of of people who live their lives in such a profoundly good way that the bad stuff around them just seems to roll off their back. You know, you know that they have choices to make, but they make the good choices over and over again. And to be able to recognize that in someone and to see that is incredibly empowering to them. There's a place where the, the, later on in the Bible where Paul warns people, don't get tired of doing the right thing. Don't grow weary of well-doing. And doing the right thing is tiring. But for somebody to see that and speak into you, that's really powerful. Whatever is lovely or beautiful, um, that love here not as a possessive thing, but as an expansive thing, something that includes, something that empowers, when you see that happening. Whoops. Sorry. So I'm going to skip way ahead. Oh. Sorry. This is stuff's really good when it works, and then it's not when it doesn't. Which is entirely the fault of the technology and not the operator, as you know. There we go. Whatever's admirable. This one's really hard because what this is is the ability to see what's good in somebody else and you don't have that good. It's the ability to see excellence in a place that maybe you wish you had that talent, you wish you had that ability, but you don't. But they do. And to be able to recognize that and call that. That's that's a hard one to do. And if you're one of those people that's like, okay, I could see four and I could see three, but there's something you didn't precisely get between those, and I think you need more categories. It's like, okay, for, for you guys that are overly precise about this, anything that is excellent or praiseworthy, 
Think on that. See it. Recognize it. And then, say it. There's a great passage in Ephesians that talks about how God has, wants all of his people to work together so that we could all grow up to be the people he wants us to be, that we could all grow up to know how to wear that crown of glory and honor. And he tells us this. He says that to each of us, grace has been apportioned, that God has miraculously, amazingly given us certain abilities to do things. And one of the primary things, there's a whole list of things that this passage covers, but near the end, the grace that he's apportioned to all of us is this, that we will be given the ability to speak the truth in love, that we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. That God is at work right now to give each of us the ability to speak the truth to one another in love. Now, a lot of times when that verse normally gets quoted, if you've been around Christian circles for very long, speaking the truth in love usually means you're doing something that I think is wrong, and I'm about to tell you that it's wrong, but I'm speaking only the truth, and I'm doing it in love. It may not feel terribly loving, but that is the case. And understand, there are times when it is the loving thing to tell one another that hard things. But unfortunately, that is almost exclusively the way that that phrase gets used in Christian circles. And I want to suggest the opposite is the case. That what if speaking the truth in love, what if it meant telling people what is right with them rather than what is wrong? How transformative that could be. So imagine you have a coworker who is a terrible gossip or is just mean with his words you know, has the ability to recognize how words affect people, but just uses it to tear them down. Now, you could go to him and say, I'm telling you the truth in love, but you're being a really jerk, a real jerk right now, and it's bad, and I wish you would stop. Now, that has a chance that it would succeed. I mean, just like if I stood at a thousand-foot cliff and tried to throw a basketball into a hoop, Eventually, I might have a chance to hit the hoop because the hoop's there and it, there's a possibility. But the chance that that approach is going to actually work are pretty slim. But here's what I really think the Lord wants us to look at today is what would happen if you could begin to partner with the Lord? Hey, you know that grace you talked about in Ephesians? Can you give me the grace to see what is excellent in this guy? to see what is praiseworthy, to see what is good, and then give me the courage and the insight to tell him. Because if somebody's being a jerk with their words and you tell them that, I'll bet you you're not the first. I'll bet you you've heard it along the way. And I'll bet you he even already has a sense that he's that guy and is struggling with the fact that half the time he likes being that guy because of the power it gives him over people. And the other half of the time he's like, God, why did I say that again? I keep saying that. But imagine how transformative it is, because our job is to not fix people. Our job is to help them get ready to wear the crown. That that jerk in your your workplace who's just mean to people was also created to be crowned with glory and honor. And the quickest and best and the foolproof path to get there. It's really hard to confront somebody correctly 
It's not hard at all to bless somebody correctly. It's not hard at all to tell them something good about themselves and to just say it clearly. So what would happen if that whatever was true and noble and pure and lovely and admirable, that we could learn to recognize and say these things? Friends, I think that's what God wants us to be doing right now. He wants us to learn how to recognize these things, and you do it by just paying attention and looking for it, giving yourself a chance to see it. And then you just say it. And there's no trick to that. You just got to do it, and it'll be terrifying the first time and scary the next time and awkward the third time, and then eventually it starts to feel okay. You, you, you just do it. So, again, why is this essential? Go back to the essay from Lewis. He says, you know, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. It is a serious thing to live alongside people and to have as part of your responsibility on earth their well-being of people who were created almost divine, who were created to be crowned with glory and honor. It may not look like it, but Lewis goes on to say that there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, they are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of the gnat. But your annoying co-worker, your family member that you're having a hard time with, the kid in your class, your boss, your neighbor, the guy on the freeway, or that guy on the freeway, or whoever it is, all of them were created. All of them were created and made just a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor. So what does God want from us today? He wants us to recognize that in ourselves, but again, that's hard to do. But if we can all commit to seeing that in one another and saying that to one another, you know, that was a really loving thing that you did, and I saw that. You know, what you did over there was just right. It was, it was you helped everybody come together. That, man, that thing that you do, I could never do that, but you do that so well. And I, I just, I admire that. That was really great. That was really good. It, it, it is amazing just what the word of another person can do to you. As we were at the park last Thursday, passing out the, the notes, we started talking about hair color because, you know, that's what you do when you're sitting in a park. And, and one of the girls that was helping is a licensed cosmetologist. And, and so I, I grew up as a blonde person, and then my hair got darker. And so I've spent about the last 20 years wondering what my true hair color was. And I, I had an embarrassing amount of my identity wrapped up in having blonde hair and not brown hair. And so Mackenzie told me I'm a seven, which means I'm a dark blonde, not a light brown. And I've been living on that for three days now. (laughs) And that's stupid. So imagine the power of seeing something real, something that God, that is representative of the glory and honor that God has made into that person and saying that to them. That's great stuff. 